0: Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from
1: ClassicHorrorClub, And I'm Richard Chamberlain from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. This year we're celebrating Halloween by dropping a new episode every
0: Monday in the month of October. I'm no mathematician, Richard, but I think that's five
1: episodes. Ah, uh, yes, but not just regular episodes. We're changing the format of our club meetings just a little bit and we're going to be joined every week by a special guest to discuss a classic horror film of their choice
0: we won't do our regular features and there won't be a podcast companion but we'll be providing plenty of holiday content right here and on our respective blogs and did i mention there's five mondays in october
1: we invite you to celebrate with us by leaving your comments and or feedback you can do that by joining our facebook group page or you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com.
0: Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Sorry guys, I guess some things will carry over
1: from our regular format. Harsh, very harsh. Here today to discuss the 1970 AIP thriller, Scream and Scream Again, are Steve Turk and Alistair Hughes. They are the co-hosts of the Hammerama podcast and have other creative endeavors of their own.
0: Welcome, guys. Thank you for joining us. Before we jump into our thoughts about Scream and Scream again, take a couple minutes and tell us about yourselves.
2: What would you like our listeners to know about you? Alistair, you want to go first? I'm actually joining you from New Zealand's where we have just gone into daylight saving, which completely confused me as to what time I was supposed to get out of bed. I got out of bed two and a half hours after I went to sleep to find that I was two hours early. So here I am again. Anyway, I just wanted to say what an incredible honor it is to be with you guys at last on your wonderful, wonderful show. The Classorama Crossover which I've long dreamt about, but probably no one else has. Uh, So good to see you guys and so good to be here to talk about Scream and Scream Again. I am Alistair Hughes. As I said, I am an illustrator and writer. I actually contribute to some of the same publications, which Jeff does, and when I'm not doing genre work for Magazines like Little Shop of Horrors and We Belong Dead. I'm illustrating children's books, which is my main form of work. Also just wanted to mention that Hammerama is back after our long summer break. And we will be discussing many more wonderful movies, but probably not nearly as wonderful as this one. It's only just beginning.
0: I was going to say with that extra two and a half hours, you know, you could have watched this again.
2: I really wish I had. When Steve mentioned that he'd watched it again this morning, I thought that's what I should have done instead of going back to bed. What was I thinking? And Alistair, you got to mention InfoGothic.
0: I know we're eagerly awaiting volume two, but tell us about the first one. I assume people. Can- oh,
2: thank you. Info Gothic seems like such a long time ago for me, but the great thing about researching, writing, and illustrating that book is that it brought me into contact with a lot of people who I can now call friends all over the world, including you guys and that Steve guy. It was the beginning of many, many wonderful things, and even though it was a solid couple of years' work for me, and almost broke me, I really loved every minute of it. So the idea behind an Infogothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror, was basically for me to talk about these movies, but in a way that no one else had before, and that is in the form of infographics. That was a form that I specialised in when I, well, I still work in journalism, and I knew that it was a way of conveying a lot of information without writing screeds and screeds of text, which many people have done already, and much better than I ever could. So it Infogothic basically is an infographic on each page, sometimes even more, discussing every horror, science fiction, prehistoric film that Hammer produced. And it's still available on Amazon. Thanks for giving me the opportunity for that plug. Your description,
0: I don't think, sells it quite enough because there's an, inc- I mean, that's very creative, yes, but there's a whole nother level of creativity with sort of your goals of the graphics, like, was it the Dracula movies you were trying to connect and show how they connect but through an infographic? Yes, I
2: bought a lot of my own opinions and some truly appalling puns to this book. But I set myself challenges like trying to link the Dracula films, which is a challenge because they were never intended to be linked, or at least not in the way that I've tried to do it. And the Frankenstein films as well. I've tried to chart a clear lineage between each one. Usually I've failed and I've had to sort of set them within three or sometimes even four distinct timelines. But that's something that we fans love doing. We like bringing everything together if we possibly can. And sometimes we go to ridiculous extents, which I certainly did. And I've also linked... The Hammer films with the Universal counterparts and other studios as well, including Amicus and AIP, which is going to come up in our conversation today. What a coincidence!
0: What a coincidence. Uh, the whole creation of the multiverse, I think, is a cheat. People can just point to that now and to explain these things, but you took real effort to sort of disregard that. And I love it. If everyone could see this, Alistair sitting in a dark little hole with a lamp (laughs) illuminating his face. Steve is sitting in front of an open window with a bright sunshine, sort of giving him an angelic appearance. Mr. Turk, tell us where you are.
3: Um, Just to clarify, we actually have a tropical storm coming through. So what you actually see is the clouds and the light still coming through the clouds. It's not a sunny day. It's a rainy, dreary day which is the best way to talk about a horror film. It just gives the appearance of beauty, but in behind it is actually dark and sinister, which is like a lot of horror films. Well, we appreciate you squeezing us in. You know, we're
0: trying to keep these episodes to an hour, but if you would like to kind of tell us some of the things that are happening on uh, your podcast.
3: You guys already brought up how Alistair and I do Hammerama. For those looking for Hammerama, it's part of the Diecast movie podcast when you go to search for it, if you search for Diecast Movie Podcast, you can find the Hammerama episodes all in there. It's all like one-house shopping. You can go there for movie discussions. You can go there for interviews. You can go there for your Hammer Film Fix. This month, basically, I've had episodes that are coming out that deal with more of the horror genre or monster movie genre. So I've had episodes come out with Zandor Vorkov from Dracula versus Frankenstein. Gregory Moffat, who is in Robot Monster. We have movie discussions where Linda Joe Miller, who is in King Kong Escapes, is going to be joining me to talk about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the Raymond Burr classic. All this leading up to Monster Bash, which is something I love to go to and I'll get to do in the middle of October. And then we have episodes that will be coming out after that. So depending on when this episode goes is what episodes will be out on the feed. And Hammerama, the latest episode, will be out waiter mass experiment will be coming out in october so for those that love a little science fiction that love a little horror you're gonna love that and what movie are we talking about a movie with a little science fiction a little horror a little espionage a little police procedural a little this a little it can go on and on and on it's a little bit of everything put in the one it covers all the genres just like my podcast i get.
0: What a great segue, Steve. And that leads me to my first question to kick us off. Why in the world and which one of you is responsible for choosing this movie? Oh, they're pointing at each other. No, Alistair's (laughs) proud of that. He's claiming it. Tell us why. Why did you want us to talk about this?
2: Why, indeed. I wanted to talk about this one firstly because I knew that you guys hadn't already, Uh, surprisingly enough. This was the first film that I ever saw. Lee, Cushing and Price in. And it just happened to be a complete coincidence that they were all in the same film. So obviously it made a huge impression on me just for that reason. I watched with my mother. I was 10 years old. I was probably I would say too young to see this film because it disturbed me. And watching it even now, some of the things that disturbed me then still do the same thing. I watched with Mum because I found out much later in life, actually after she'd passed, I was just replaying some conversations I'd had with my mother and realized that I think she had a bit of a thing for Christopher Lee. So all of those late night horror films that I stayed up for, Mum would always stay with me and I would think, oh, that's nice. She's she's keeping me company. But no, she was probably just enjoying her screen idol. Sir Christopher Lee. I knew that this film was, as I described to you guys, bat guano crazy. It's got three towering icons of horror cinema and an unforgettable performance by a British comedian actor called Alfred Marx. It has Jutta Stensgaard. It has... Everything, I think, as one of you said, it's three movies at once. And really, what could be better than that? And Steve, you supported his
0: nomination. You you didn't push back or you wholeheartedly agree. What's your history with the movie?
3: Alister Alistair picked the movie, I had never seen the movie. And Alistair usually picks all the movies in Hammerama. So I roll the die, he gets to pick the movie. So usually I defer to Alistair. And I knew when you guys had us, because we did the hammer on episodes, we pretty much were like, oh, let's avoid hammer. And I was hoping that he would pick an amicus movie and that way we can stay kind of close to our roots, so to speak, without going totally different than that. By sheer luck, when I was at the Minute Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, there was a dealer who was selling DVDs and Blu-rays and he had this price. At $10, and I got it for 5 So I was able to get an unused copy of the Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, which had both the U.S. and the U.K. version. So in prepping for this, I watched the U.S. version first, and then I watched the U.K. version again prior to recording. So I got to see both of them because in that way I can talk about the slight differences between the two. It's virtually the same film. There's just like some minor editing changes in the U.S. version compared to the U.K. Rich, we usually
0: start out with how we watched it. Steve kind of did that. How did you watch it?
1: This isn't the first time viewing for me. I'm pretty sure I saw this at some point, maybe in the early 80s. Cable television, fairly certain it was a Superstation TBS Saturday afternoon screening of it. And then... At some point in the 90s, possibly American Movie Classics, you know, or TNT, one of those channels that played movies back in the 90s. This is my second time watching the DVD, and I'd say a good old Midnight Movies double feature paired up with, I think, The Oblong Box is the other movie that was on the set. Not a lot of extras on those, but I think the presentation was really good. The quality of the print was great. It was nice to revisit it. When I was watching it this time around, there was just a lot of things that I didn't remember about this movie. So in some ways, it was kind of almost like a first-time viewing, because I think I was really watching it with a more critical eye, but also a more, more appreciative, I think. With each passing year, as I get older and wiser, I love the older movies so much more. You can't go wrong with Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Yeah, they did some stinkers along the way, but I don't know. Seeing these guys on screen even though they don't get time together necessarily still a lot of fun and the movie itself got a lot to offer and yes, it's it is like multiple movies. So you're getting like a triple feature, you know, in the time span of of 90 minutes. What about you? What was your what's your experience with it? And how did you watch it? This is another one of those
0: I can remember from the CBS late movie perhaps not actually watching it, but seeing the commercial in prime time all the many times every time there was a commercial break. Don't remember actually watching it. I think I did, though. This is special to me because it is the very first movie I wrote about on my blog, plastichorse.club. I felt I was so comfortable with it this time that I actually watched the commentary and did not just watch the movie. And I had my notes. I made all kinds of lists. And then... I really do try to research and steer clear of IMDb and Wikipedia, but at the end, I always just look to see if I pick up anything I missed. I'll be darned if all of those notes and things that I took are the trivia that's on IMDb and Wikipedia. So now I feel like I'm bringing nothing to the conversation because (laughs) maybe here and there I'll be able to throw in a little insider knowledge about the film. I think it's interesting, the three, three, three movies in one, because in a way that ties it to Amicus with their anthology run, even though these do connect at the end, maybe. I think that Twilight (laughs) Time had a Blu-ray. I did have that MGM double feature, but I upgraded to the Blu-ray. Usually Twilight Time is bare bones, but this had the commentary that I mentioned. It had bonus features. So I was very happy that
1: that was the disc that I had. And I know you paid more for your copy from Twilight Time than Steve paid for his, because Twilight Time was very proud of their products. I
0: don't remember.
1: (laughs) You know, oddly,
0: I just unwrapped it. This was the first time I actually watched the Blu-ray, so I must have only watched it on that DVD before.
1: There's nothing odd about that. I'm surprised (laughs) you don't have two copies. That's how my collection continues (laughs) to grow.
3: I don't know what quality print that you guys had in your versions, but I will say the Kino one, it's pristine. You know, the U.S. version is really nice. U.K. version, at the beginning of it, it's not probably the version of film they were using. It just wasn't as nice, Then it got nicer. You know, you could see where the work is. So I think it was just depending on what film they were restoring from. So if you don't own the Blu-ray version, I recommend if people want to buy the film, The Kino version is the way to go.
1: Even regular price, it's price to own.
0: Alistair, what exciting, unknown, mysterious ways do you have to watch movies in New Zealand? How did you
2: watch this? In New Zealand, we have to make our own fun. We're so far away from the rest of the world. Even if I'd had time to order a copy from overseas, it wouldn't have arrived on time. I actually watched a Swedish version, which was uh, put together by a video store. No, I'm just kidding. But imagine what that would have been like. In fact, I'd love to have been part of that. <laughs> Let's just say that I was able to locate a copy and leave it at that. However, this film really has burned itself Into my brain, as I say, when I was an impressionable 10 year old, I was almost sent screaming from the room by some of the spectacles that we're about to discuss here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to what you guys think of it, because I do feel a little bit responsible as this was my choice. Yes.
0: I gave you a hard time, but I really enjoy this movie. Wonderful. I joked with Steve earlier. I messaged him and said that I would explain what it all meant, that it's really, very simple and straightforward. (laughs) I'm halfway serious about that because apparently the book 1966, The Disoriented Man, Mm -hmm. um, credited to Peter Saxon. But apparently there was a a group of writers at that time that was chugging out these. I don't know what you call them, novels or sci-fi novels. There's a one thing missing from the movies that almost just explains everything in one. It does. I won't say what that
2: is now. I I know exactly what you're talking about, Jeff, and it it would it would wrap everything up, but also it would take away some of the head scratching mystery, which I really really enjoy about this film.
0: Yeah, and I always say like it doesn't hurt for us to think a little bit and kind of interpret exactly. we don't have to have it spelled out to us. And I, yeah. I kind of like that because I bet you could, not knowing that little piece, I bet you could come up with a half dozen different explanations for what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rich, you want to
1: start out? Yeah, you know, I like it. It's not my favorite from the Three Masters, mm-hmm. but I think with each viewing, I, I admire it a little bit more. And it honestly, for its quirkiness. Because you've just got these different stories. First, you're trying to figure out, how do they connect? You've got this random guy that we're getting scenes as he's just losing limbs, which is funny. It's not supposed to be, but I laugh. The poor guy, every time he wakes up, he's lost a leg, he's lost an arm. The angel of death comes in and gives him more drugs. And to me, that's just this weird little side story that eventually comes into play. Vincent Price, when he's on screen, when he's introduced... Dr. Browning, Vincent's always good when he's on the screen. Sure, even if Vincent was to phone in a performance, he's still going to entertain. He's just got a presence whenever he's on screen, his voice, and it's just his mannerisms. And sometimes just the little nuances he gives to a performance as he's trying to kind of give this persona and measure of concern for the missing woman that when the police are asking questions and he's just kind of acting surprised and shocked and it's so good to see him Christopher Lee's performance as the uh I guess the was it the government man Fremont did he phone it in I don't think so necessarily but it's not a role that's really gets fleshed out too much it kind of serves its purpose honestly I think one of his best moments comes in the climax of the film and perhaps the very last scene of the film, just he gets the last line, if you will. It says about all you need to know. Yes, we could get some explanation. I kind of like the fact that we don't know because it just adds to the bat guano of the plot. This film serves its purpose and it entertains. Peter Cushing, I would like to have seen more of. He's the one that's kind of the loner in the group because he has no scenes with price or with lee at least lee and price get their scene at the end of the film yet peter cushing his presence on screen is just always entertaining major heinrich want to see more of him he gets killed off far too quickly for me i don't know if
0: you'll count this as a star trek reference with the vulcan nerve pinch
1: (laughs) well (laughs) obviously doctor who references we'll talk about but I didn't get a solid Star Trek reference, so I'll take that. We're stretching it, but why not? 1970, you know, you might have learned a thing or two from Leonard Nimoy. Who knows? I always love movies from this time period that throw in some quirky, early 1970s music that you're not going to hear anywhere else. It's not going to pop up on the top 40. It's this random song... Yes, the group, Amen Corner. they had their little footnote in, in musical history. I really don't know much about them. Uh, they weren't around very long, 66 to 69. So I think even by the time this movie came out, they had moved on. They had gone on to the project. Yet... The music lives on. Decades later, the band, they're not playing in a bar out in the middle of Hoboken. Four gentlemen are together on a Saturday afternoon talking about this quirky little song by this band called Amen Corner. And that is all you need to know. I enjoyed
0: it. Who favors Amen Corner versus Stoneground?
1: Oh, Oh, that's a tough question. That one. Gauntlet was
2: thrown on that one. Oh, they kind of go hand in hand. Scream and Scream Again, I find to be a much catchier earworm for performance. I would go with Stone Ground. Yeah, because there's a whole lot yeah.
1: happening when Stoneground is on the screen.
3: I like Scream and Scream Again better. It's also, for those that haven't heard it, it's on Spotify. The whole song in its entirety. But it reminds me of the Scooby-Doo type stuff where it's just really a refrain or two, and they just keep repeating it. Over and over again. But the music is good and the dancing's going on. It's it's background noise and it's a good background noise.
0: During those scenes, I'm always more fascinated by the dancing and the movement than really Mm -hmm. listening to the music. Some great stuff there.
3: I knew nothing about the movie going into the first time watching except the cover from the Blu-ray, which is the poster. I didn't want to look at anything else. I knew it had Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing. Some people could say they're still looking for Peter Cushing because he's only in the movie for a little bit. It's kind of interesting. Because after I got done the movie, I was reading stuff, you know, people wrote synopsis. And man, they make some of these synopsis have Peter Cushing's parts seem like it's like it's really big. And I'm thinking he's, he's in there for like two minutes and it's gone. Others are much more accurate in its portrayal. I was impressed with Alfred Mark the detective superintendent, because really it's his movie for the most part until he passes the baton to Christopher Matthews, Dr. Sorrell. So it's really the two of them. A police procedural put into a scientific, supernatural, mad scientist type movie. It has a Kolchek vibe to it if you go with it in that perspective where you have the every man or every man, so to speak, going and encountering these things and it's just like, It is doing what? People are doing this. How's this happening? And it has that surrealness because it's following nerve perspective where a lot of movies at a time you would follow more of Vincent Price, which I think would make, I'm a Vincent Price fan. I would love to see more Vincent Price. Don't get me wrong. I'd like to see more of all three leads, but knowing what the movie is about, when I watched it the second time, I was able to follow different things because I knew what was going on. Because really when it opens up with the guy running And by the way, I got to ask you, Al, does New Zealand really have fresh, crisp apples, like the sign said on the bus?
2: (laughs) It it made me so happy that one of the first things you see in the film is the name of my country. Yes, we do have fresh, crisp apples. In fact, the freshest, crispest ones tend to go overseas and we get left with the dross. So enjoy them while you can, folks.
3: (laughs) Okay. So it's trooping advertising in the movie then. If you would go to New Zealand, you can go for a lot of things, but really, why go visit all the stuff that's done from Lord of the Rings? Go get your fresh crisp apples. That's right. And <laughs> bring your copy of Infogothic and seek out Alistair and get an autographed copy. Moving back along to the movie, you see this guy running and then he falls over, and the next thing, like you see him in the hospital various segments, which which Rich Ball was hysterical. I was I never thought it was funny. I just thought it was interesting how they showed the passage of time. And what's going on with him? But Rich, you know, he's from Kansas City. They have a different sense of humor than I do on the East Coast, I guess. And Kansas City. Well, and I'll City tell that. you, I
0: was disturbed when he said that made him laugh. I was an hmm. ask Richard. I was not aware of. I didn't find anything funny about that. It made me laugh with great pleasure.
2: Oh my! Those the, those scenes when I saw them as a young boy gave me a horror and a dread of hospitals, which. It took me years and years to get over. I mean, the hospital pajamas, the soulless nurse, and what's happening to the guy. I found that absolutely horrifying.
1: I have kind of the same thing. I've had several
2: shoulder surgeries.
1: They're putting you under, and then, you know, here, count backwards, and then, you know, the next thing you know, you wake up. I think it was after my second shoulder surgery. They didn't give me enough anesthesia, and I woke up on the table feeling this massive pain in my shoulder because they hadn't finished the damn operation. And I've had a fear ever since then. Actually, I thought of that when I saw this. I should
2: probably have some more fear than I already do. The question I have to ask is that when you woke up, did you scream and scream again?
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, I did. I screamed (laughs) because I was in pain. Not a good experience. I guess that's why I can look at this guy who's losing his limbs and his arms, and I just, there's an evil side of me that finds it funny. I just, you know, I guess that's how we roll here in Kansas City. I'm
3: sorry. I'm, I'm doing something. Jeff, you moved from Kansas City, so that's why you no longer find the scene funny, mm-hmm. and Rich does, mm-hmm. and Rich is a little demented. But I will say that one of the things that draw me to that scene and makes me scared is when I had my tonsils taken out when I was in first grade, my middle brother had his tonsils taken out also on the same deck. So his procedure was prior to mine. And I had this vivid nightmare. During the nightmare, it was like all these needles were being put onto my body, little by little, covering I was like on my legs, my arms, thousands of needles. And I was just screaming. Now I talked to my brother decades later about that. And he said when he was recovering, I was in one recovery area and he was in another one, all he could hear was me screaming my bloody head off i was out of it i didn't know i was so he could just hear these yells from me yeah rich i had those memories too but i still don't find this scene funny there's just something wrong with you rich there is something seriously wrong with you because you didn't even watch horror films till you were older so i don't know what it is did you torture animals when you were young did you did you take the magnifying glass of the sun and blow up ants or whatever i mean rich <laughs> there is something seriously corrupt in your soul <laughs> and his face is turning redder and redder listeners.
1: <laughs> I'm laughing the scenario. It's frightening to hear that. Yeah. You're, you're hearing your siblings scream in the other room, but yet there's a part of me, the dark humor side of me. I'm, I'm laughing. It's kind of twisted. I'm sorry. I, I think know. that's how the movie got its name, right? Because mm-hmm. he woke up,
0: mm-hmm. he'd scream and then he'd wake up again. He'd scream again. Yeah. Steve, you mentioned something we have to talk about this primarily because of it, it makes me have another connection to this movie, and that is that poster art. I don't know if you do it every time on Hammerama, but sometimes you've kind of dissected the movie poster and, and looked at it. I've asked Alistair to prepare and do that for us. But my connection to that is, like, that art, to me, it was, like, everywhere. Cover of Famous Monsters, primarily, which I learned I do not have, and that immediately has moved up in my wish list. I do have this copy of Four Monsters Only that has a different image. Mm. Before I got this Blu-ray out last night, I bet I could have drawn the poster. It was so mm. vivid in my memory. However, studying it now, there are some things I noticed different. Before I do that, Alistair, please tell us about mm. the art- artistry. Describe this poster and and
2: what being an artist, what it looks like to you. I would be really, really happy to talk about the poster and I'm glad that you asked me because I have thoughts. You guys might end up regretting this. we'll We'll see how how we go. Incidentally, I think the first time I ever saw it was the famous monsters cover as well. Maybe we'll we'll give listeners a moment just to call it up on their screens, whether they're googling it or whether they have it in print form. So as you can see, the image is beautifully rendered. And the composition and the colour palette I would describe as classically elegant. The top third of the image background is white, leaving space for the poster byline and the uncorroded elements of the main figure. More about her later. The bottom two thirds are stark black, which allows the film's title and credits to be reversed out. And the appearance of the movie's real star, the Acid Pit. Now, this is economically suggested with a simple rectangular cutout from the centre top of the black block. The title is left and right justified to match the width of the acid bath and the lime and light blue typography. It's a powerful contrast against the black background and the primary coloured text Slightly overlaid against the larger first word, scream, suggests an echo in the wording, the colour value, and its positioning. I think this is actually really sophisticated design. I'm impressed at how much thought has gone into poster for a film of this nature. The most usually used byline, triple distilled horror as powerful as a vat of boiling acid, seems to confuse many reviewers, and it gives rise to many jokes about how many times a standard horror film is usually distilled. That's the byline I've seen most often. Perhaps in your part of the world, that's not the one that's used. Now, I might be entirely wrong, but to me, the triple distillation has always referred numerically to the film's main attraction, and that is the trio of horrormeisters, the Kush, Sir Chris, and Uncle Vinny. The lesser scene byline, and perhaps this is one that you guys are more familiar with, goes some way to explaining this undeniably confusing film. And it was maybe written specifically for that purpose. And this one reads Composite Beings, half synthetic. Half human transplant, they live, they love, they kill, but cannot die, but cannot die in the cloud. Only boiling acid will dissolve them, halt their unearthly lust. And now I reluctantly turn to the main figure, which is at first glance one of the most startlingly misogynistic images ever put on a film poster. Now, the dehumanizing of women in movie promotions is as old as cinema itself. And one technique often used is to not even show the character's head, only her body or parts of it. Now, later on, I'm going to reference my favorite Roger Moore, James Bond film, For Your Eyes Only. And this is a very famous example of what I've just described here. Here. The woman has been depersonalised because her head and shoulders have been literally eaten away, right to the bone, by acid. Naturally, her cleavage, the acid helpfully lowering her neckline even further for the male gaze, and bare legs remain untouched because, well, that's what women so often are on film posters, right? Technically, she is at least beautifully painted. The remaining flesh tones again working well with the stark black and white, and the greenish highlights. Her left hand is outspread, suggesting sudden pain and distress, because who wouldn't? While her right hand droops and curls in death. The wristwatch is an interesting touch, and it's possibly the only humanising element. Now... I'm going to try and justify this literal consumption of an anonymous female form by suggesting that almost everyone is dehumanised in this film to some extent, both male and female. Because walking skin bags are literally all that many of the characters actually are. And when they aren't composites, they are homogenised by the uniforms of Konrads's unnamed police state, and all disposed of with no more thought than plastic packaging. Even Lee and Cushing show no emotion which is required by their roles. Putting social politics aside for a moment, it can't be denied that this is an extremely well-executed poster, which has probably never just been glanced over by anybody. It commands attention, It challenges our perceptions, and it even shocks us. And so, for those reasons, I believe it deserves to be considered a complete success. In fact, more than that, it's a classic of its kind.
0: That was amazing. Bravo, sir. Thank you. My little comments are going to appear so ridiculous after that. Not at all. Well, welcome to my
3: world, Jeff. Welcome (laughs) to my world.
0: (laughs) My two comments are oddly, I didn't remember that we saw her breasts, and now that I look at it, <laughs> what do you make of
2: is that a bubble
0: or is that a nipple? There's some kind of ambiguity there. Would you agree,
2: or I would agree there's that ambiguity, but I think the intention is fairly clear. Yeah, well, yes,
0: the other thing was I didn't remember how sort of cartoony the skull looks, mm. It doesn't, to me, look like it belongs with that body. I, I mm. realize everything has been eaten away, but if you were to turn the head straight up instead of perpendicular to the shoulders.
2: Mm. No, nice. that's an extremely good point, and it's one that I missed.
3: Well well, well done.
0: Yeah. Anyone else have one, thoughts about the poster art?
3: One thing I want to say, with this poster, what it does achieve is getting people to want to see the movie, which is the main goal of any poster, and... Alistair brought up how it has the two different taglines the shorter one and the long one and I remembered when I'm looking at this poster with the more in detail explanation it almost gives the movie away Mm, in a sense so now you know really because the other one doesn't really explain anything this one you're like okay now I have a rough idea which a lot of it is the twist you find out So now all these twists are now thrown up on the poster so it can kind of hurt of viewing expectation. Cause again, I watched it the first time cold the blu-ray when I bought it did not have the detailed explanation, nor did I read the back. I knew we were going to be doing the movie when I purchased it. So I was like, Oh, this is a great find at a great price. But when I saw that picture, (laughs) the first thing it reminded me of was getting eerie comics, the magazine style ones off the rack. And this would have been a cover of one of those comics that I think almost everybody that was interested in those types of things would have bought just because the cover, even if there was no story in that issue, that cover would have sold a lot of magazines, which you guys said is on Famous Monsters. You can see why people would be like, oh, this is going to sell because people are going to see it. But it makes you wonder what the story would be like inside that's going to utilize this acid pit. And of course, all mad scientists, as we know, have acid pits. You're not a true respecting bad scientist unless you have an acid pit, which Vincent Price does, and and it's a mobile acid pit. I think the cover is amazing, but Alistair, I I don't think there's anything else to add to it that Alistair hasn't said. If I haven't
2: ranted enough, and I do apologize for that, I just wanted to mention that just as an acid test, I showed the poster to my wife, Rose. Now, Rose is a nurse, a beautiful nurse. So I obviously eventually overcame my uh, hospital phobia. But anyway, I showed Rose this poster and said, tell me what you think of this, said, the feminist side of me has issues, you tell me what you think. Now, she was actually quite shocked by the fact that this female form is not only inverted, but the legs are basically spread. And not even noticing that sort of made me realise just how desensitised we actually do become to these sorts of things. But she could also instantly appreciate that it is, as I said, a beautifully executed poster. I think part of the reason that it impresses, I guess, all four of us so much, is not so much for the negative things that I've mentioned, but the fact that typographically and composition-wise, it actually works extremely well. And it uses it uses colours and compositions, which I would happily use now if I was trying to put something together. And I think that's the true definition of a classic, that its elements remain fresh and
3: effective. Just hit me now. When Alistair mm. was doing his, his vivid description about, how, and also tying it to the movie about how a lot of people were desensitized. The people like meat sacks and so on. The poster ties in with the theme in the movie because the character that Christopher Matthews played, Dr. Sorrell, he's learning how to become desensitized to death because you have the scene where he's with the older more experienced coroner who trained him and he learned that you have to overcome this you have to look at just this and then you have the detective coming in Alfred Marks when he's cleaning up and he goes oh you'll never get it all off don't worry you know that kind of stuff you get used and how these people are so used to seeing death and mayhem Mm -hmm. because that's what their job is and really it's just another day You, you become immune to it and he has not yet become desensitized I think that the movie poster is one of the few that ties in with an overarching theme of the movie but I only didn't realize that now until after Alistair described the poster in such exquisite detail that I was able to see well this theme ties in with the hero the main character that were kind of one of the two main characters one of the two hero characters that we're following through the movie and how it's his journey to where is he going to stay sensitized or is he going to become desensitized and that's the thing you don't know even at the end like which path is he going to end up going on currently i don't think he's gone desensitized yet but is he just a matter of time before he becomes that way or will he be able to overcome it i mean if he stays in the field that he's in working with corpses it's only a matter of time
2: he was extremely eager to give uncle vinnie his opportunity to monologue He couldn't have been more enthusiastic. He even let Dr. Browning put the surgical gown on him. He really looked as if he was all for it until he found out who the subject of the surgery was going to be.
1: I think it's telling that we've had a 10-minute conversation on the poster. It's an art form that I think is lost among a lot of modern-day films. There's a very formulaic look to blockbuster Movie posters now, right? It's a, the ensemble shot, the headshots, the center person, and then you've got people on it. You know, it lacks creativity. And I think what we've talked about here, it is an art form that is seen very rarely today. We're not going to be saying the same thing about modern films. You're not going to have a ten minute mm-hmm. conversation on it because it doesn't really do the same thing that this poster does. There's so many other great posters of the past, and not all of them. Some of them were formulaic, but there's an art form. That's why you can have movie poster books, and you can look at those great movie posters from decades past.
2: Agreed. We
1: talked about the poster being
0: well executed. How about the movie? And I don't mean we've talked a little about the plot and all of that, but what about those technical aspects of it or skill? How did you find the pacing? Did you have any interesting shots how, how was the movie executed?
3: The movie moves at a brisk pace. There is no lag in it. As already was brought up, it has several different storylines going on simultaneously that don't really make any sense while they're all together until, I guess, the last 10, 15 minutes when it all gets interwoven in. And even then, it's still kind of a tenuous connection. I have not read the book, The Disoriented Man... Based off of, I did read a plot summary of the book, and the book seems to follow roughly the same type of tropes um, that go with it, with the three different arcs, and it all comes together in an end, which is different. I don't know how much, if you want to spoil this movie or not.
0: Richard, what do you think? I think we talked about letting people think and kind of determine for themselves what they yeah. think happened,
1: but we could tell what we thought. I've got a question too, because I read one thing about. There is something in the novel that is not covered in the movie. We could talk about that aspect. I'll just say it now. In the book, supposedly the main villains were aliens. Was it a footnote or was it a main thread in the book? What do you guys know about that?
2: There were actually two versions of the script written. One was a more or less straight adaptation of the book by the... Amicus co-producer Milton Sabotsky, because as you know, this was a collaborative effort between Amicus, AIP, and British Lion, I think. At the same time, AIP got Christopher Wicking to adapt Scream and Scream Again. Now, Christopher Wicking worked for Hammer among other studios. They went with Christopher Wicking's version because they wanted a fast-paced action thriller, whereas apparently Milton got very bogged down in the book, which many people have said isn't a great book anyway. The AIP producers could see that there was the germ of a really good idea there, but they really weren't interested in the science fiction aspect. And They weren't even that interested in the horror aspect. They wanted a contemporary thriller, which is what we got in many, many ways. My guess would be, because I haven't written the book, that the alien aspect is actually probably a fairly major part of the last part of the book. But for the film, it's been completely removed. And as we've discussed, I think the film is probably better for it. It leaves those questions. Who was Christopher Lee's character? How was he able to glower Vincent Price right into an acid bath? Although if anyone can do it, probably Christopher Lee can. There's all those questions left. And in the decades, many, many decades that have passed since I've seen that film, I've often pondered them, and I still do. And I think that's a much more satisfying experience.
1: I can only imagine if they would have thrown that in. It would have been an additional head-scratching moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Depending on where they put it in the movie, it would have felt maybe I had a left field. Yeah. We're shoehorning something else into this film. The version that we saw, I don't think that it would have enhanced it, and I I think it would have just been a a weird addition that wouldn't have made much sense.
2: I was kind of imagining it as maybe an analogous to what the X-Files did where they had the background conspiracy and you had altered people and hybrid people. And there was always the the kind of backstory that it was because of aliens, but it was never really defined or explained. And I, I imagine it was probably a precursor to something like that. I could see that,
1: yeah.
0: There is an X-Files episode where somebody wakes up and their limbs have been amputated. Ah, interesting. They talked about that in the commentary. I never thought of the overall concept, though, being similar, and I really like
3: that. Mm. It's just a guess, of course, because as I say, I'm afraid I haven't read the novel. I don't think it would have made a difference if they had the science fiction alien angle. It would have explained how they had the technology and the wherewithal to make the synthetic body parts in a way. It could have been introduced right then and there at the end. Oh, that's why they're a little different. That's why they're creating this composite being, and that's why the things were different than it was earlier so it didn't really have to be explained didn't have to be shown early on for me it could just been thrown right then and there because really they don't really explain anything in any great detail in this movie i mean you have to come in with it and then put it together yourself which i'm fine with movies doing this is not spoon fed this is where you actually have to think okay how come this happened for that and i got to watch it back to back days and when you watch it the first time and you go to watch it the second time, you know everything that's coming, except for the parts that were different in the UK version. To me, I don't know why they edited out the little things that they edited out. That didn't make any sense. It saved them just roughly like one or two minutes or something like that, and it really, some of it added points to the plot. I'm assuming all three of you saw the US version?
0: Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't aware there were different versions.
3: Did you see a part where a... um? Like a wino or a homeless guy or drunk was leering at the um, Keith and the first victim, Sylvia, when they were in the convertible, when they were starting to make out, he would have been holding a bottle. They would have shown him twice. I don't if know. you saw that, you saw the UK version. Okay. I and mean, Alistair must have sold the UK version, but he's nodding yes. No, no. I, I
2: was nodding because I've read about that scene, Steve, but thinking back, no, that wasn't in the print that I saw. So it must have been the US version.
3: When I was watching the U.S. version, it was weird because you could see Sylvia particularly looking at something in front of the car, somewhere off of the car, and they never showed it. And I was just like, what is she looking at? Because there's something that she had to have seen. Well, that's Mm -hmm. what she was looking at. She was looking at the guy, looking at them, drinking his alcoholic beverage, and that's why she said this is no good here. And that's why they ended up moving from the vehicle to another spot. That explains sense.
2: that line. Yes, because that line makes no sense in the U.S. print. Right. Excellent. Exactly.
3: Yeah. So it yeah, makes yeah. sense. Now, mm-hmm. the other part is the detective showing his cricket arm, being that it was a U.K. version. I'll go with cricket. <laughs> for most American guys, baseball. When they're in the quarry and Keith is scaling the wall of rock like Spider-Man. I mean, it's just like, which shows off his supernatural abilities, which I thought was great scene. I'm like, what Mm -hmm. are they going to do now? If he gets to the top, is this how he escapes? In the U S version, we just see him slip and fall. But in the UK version, the detective grabs a rock, throws, it hits right between the hands. He's still climbing. Then he grabs another rock, hits him right on the left hand. Which then causes him to lose his grip and slide ah. all the way down. Why take that out? Because yeah, one, yeah. it shows the detective doing heroic things instead of him just always oh, slipped and fell by sheer mm-hmm. luck, they get him. No. Mm-hmm. And it only was like 10, 15 seconds of footage. Why did you edit this out, US? Why? Was, was it something horrific that we can't show rocks being misused?
1: <laughs> there was an editor somewhere that needed to prove that he should be earning his paycheck ah sometimes you wonder those little
2: snippets like that it's who knows let's keep in mind that young children could be watching steve and they could copy that if one of them is 100 feet in the air climbing a sheer wall and a chalk quarry one of those children could pick up a rock and throw it because they've seen it in this film so i'd I'd thank you to be more responsible sir
3: and I'd Alistair, love it if they the we in the, during the movie production, if they were showing a Roadrunner cartoon short beforehand. It's like, oh, we can't have it in the movie, but we can show Wile E. Coyote do crazy stuff.
1: Alistair, we have a job for you on the video nasty review board. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, but here, you think those two are bizarre. You have limited time with Christopher Lee and Vincent Price together. So what do you edit out? Oh, let's edit out Christopher Lee and Vincent Price being together. They edit out a line that Christopher Lee says to Vincent Price. It's just bizarre. Because Vincent Price will say, what about the dream? And I think uh, Christopher Lee says something like, it's a nightmare. And then he backs them into the vat. That line, although we never being been in the U.S., of all the bizarre things to edit out, all three of these are bizarre. But the most bizarre thing, no, let's edit out the name people the people that people are paying their good money to see, because nobody in the U.S. is paying money. I hate to say, it, even though I love Alfred Marks, nobody was paying money to see Alfred Marks. Nobody was paying money in the U.S. to see Christopher Matthews. They're paying money to see Christopher Lee and Vincent Price. And if you blink, you miss them. Peter Cushing you know, type thing. So no, let's edit a little bit of that. <laughs> and all I'm going to do now is hit my hand on my forehead. <laughs> so that's what I would have did to the editor. I would have been like, I'll leave it to you gentlemen to digest those are the differences that I could tell between the two.
1: Clearly, you become emotionally scarred by these extra scenes. That's proving Alistair's point is that they were clearly harmful to the viewer. I'm thankful that for Jeff and I and Alistair that we didn't have to endure that. Mm. I feel better. I I don't know about you guys.
3: (laughs) You feel good about people getting legs ripped off. Which is actually a
1: good point. You're editing those parts out, but you have no problem Mm -hmm. showing the guy losing limbs
2: at the beginning part.
3: Or taking acid baths. That's okay, but we can't show it a
2: (laughs) rock. I do want to briefly touch on, that's probably the wrong choice of words as well. I I briefly want to describe a scene which I saw a completely different way as a 10-year-old. And that is in that final sequence in the surgical theater where Browning's assistant carries the woman who's dressed only in a very badly fitting bald wig. He carries her across the floor and puts her down on the gurney. Now, this young lady obviously has a core strength of solid steel because she is holding her body so rigidly that when I saw this as a 10-year-old, my lasting memory was that that was a dummy. That was a mannequin. It wasn't a real person, purely because she did such a wonderful job of appearing to be a mannequin. Of course, what obviously missed my notice then was that this apparently lifeless figure does manage to move her hands to cover her groin area very surreptitiously. For some reason, I noticed that this time, but not then. Yes, yeah, surely if someone's going to cut a scene, <laughs> it might have been that one. But maybe everyone else thought it was a mannequin. I don't
3: know. And I watched it twice and I missed it both times. But maybe I just wasn't looking at the spots you were looking at, Al. I might have been looking at maybe a couple not. of other things. Yeah, but not that.
0: I was looking at the bald cap because the commentators were talking about how bad it was. But then
3: mm-hmm.
0: they said, well, we don't know. This is an artificial human being. It's a composite in some state of falling apart. That's oh, okay. I didn't let that bother me.
2: I would challenge you guys, though. One of you lift the other one and oh. just see how well you can keep yourself completely rigid like that. Very athletic young woman manages to do.
3: I love Judy Bloom in this. She was wonderful, playing at the, the police side and everything. And I just thought she did a very good job. She didn't do a lot, but she was in the movie a lot. She was in the beginning, like little segments here and there. And then they repurposed her again as other roles. And you thought she was out of action after her encounter with Keith. But no, she's plucky and keeps
2: going on. She was probably one of the warmest, most, most human characters, and I, I really enjoyed her as well. But just before I forget, can I just take a moment to talk about Michael Gothard as Keith? I found out relatively recently that uh he played the silent henchman, the assassin, in For Your Eyes Only, which as I mentioned before, is my all-time favourite Roger Moore, James Bond. Now, I I remember uh, Michael Gothard's character from For Your Eyes Only really, really well. I mean, he's obviously got a very distinctive facial structure. And in that particular Bond film, he wears very distinctive glasses. They're octagonal shaped, I think. He was the main henchman. But the henchman below him The second tier henchman was a youngish actor who was kind of just starting out. I don't know if you guys have heard of him at all. There's someone called Charles Dance. It just shows you that everybody has to start somewhere. And Charles Dance started as the henchman to Keith, the vampire killer, in a James Bond film.
1: Yeah, Michael Gothard was great in this. And I do remember him from For Your Eyes Only. He's villainous in in this really evil, charming kind of way. He gets a lot of dream time, really. Mm. More so than the three main stars of the film. (laughs) Rich, do you want to go through any of the other cast or crew? Yeah, real quick. And I thought it'd be fun to see, because, you know, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, obviously, we don't need to say everything they've done, but I thought it'd be fun to see what else they did in 1970. Just to show you in, in contrast. So Vincent Price... He did An Evening of Edgar Allan Poe, which is that amazing made-for-television special where he does basically a one-man stage performance of Poe. Cry the Banshee was released in 1970. He did three television guest appearances because Vincent Price at one point was on just about everything on TV. And then a movie that I had heard about at one point, I had forgotten about, and now makes me want to seek it out again because I think it's probably a train wreck of a film. Cucumber Castle. A musical comedy that also features Barry and Maurice Gibb and Lulu, amongst (laughs) others. I don't know if any one of you gentlemen have seen Cucumber Castle. I'm going to venture probably not. I, on the other hand, kind of want to oddly seek it out. (laughs) Christopher Lee had nine films released in 1970, so he was a slacker. The Bloody Judge, One More Time, Count Dracula, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Scars of Dracula, and a film I just watched this past week, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, in which he played Mycroft.
2: Mm.
1: Peter Cushing wasn't as busy. Uh, He only did three films. He was also in the movie One More Time, this one, and then, of course, The Vampire Lovers, mostly because his wife was ill in 1970. Mm. She'd pass away on January 14th, 1971. Marshall Jones, he was in Cry of the Banshee and Murders in the Rue Morgue. Alfred Marks, from horror fans' perspectives, he's probably most remembered for this film. Well credited, though, 71 credits. Michael Gothard, of course, we mentioned Fear Eyes Only. He was also in The Devils and a film we've talked about on this podcast, Who Slew Auntie Rue. Christopher Matthews, who played Dr. Sorrell. Doctor Who reference, he was in... The first Dr. William Hartnell's last story, The Tenth Planet, in 1966, and he was also in Scars of Dracula. Judy Huxtable played Sylvia. She was the girl in the bar. Die Screaming Marianne. It's a film that gets talked about sometimes. Miss Stensgard, because I'm not going to attempt the first name and get in trouble, played Erica, the girl in the field perhaps better remembered for her dual role as uh, Mercalla and Carmilla Karnstein in Lust for a Vampire, 1971. Christopher Wicking, tons of credits for him. Oblong Box, Cry of the Van Murz, and The Remorgue, Blood from Mummy's Tomb, Demons of the Mind, and To the Devil a Daughter. And the film was directed by Gordon Hessler, who also did some of those same films. But three things that caught my eye. Jeff, he was the one that directed The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver that you covered over at your blog, and I actually saw that movie with Karen Black. That was pretty good. He directed the Spanish Moss Murders episode on Kolchak the Night Stalker and also directed The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Mm -hmm. I thought this was interesting. Apparently, this was released on a double bill in the U.S. with the two-headed transplant.
2: (laughs) Just got one Doctor Who reference to add there. Peter Salas, who plays Conrad's first victim, is well known as Wallace from Wallace and Gromit, which is one more disturbing thing about this film. They kill Wallace. But (laughs) Peter Salas was also in the second Doctor story, The Ice Warriors. And I believe he was actually contracted to appear in a Peter Davison story. But I think there was a strike or something else prevented him from doing that. But Peter Sellers, a wonderful, wonderful actor, turns up everywhere. But to me, he'll
3: always be Wallace. Rich brought up Erica. They reminded me in the movie. I watched it the first time and I thought, how did this communist guy pull off the show when Erica and her, I guess her boyfriend or friend are running up the hill? We have no idea why. They're running, never explained, <laughs> ever in the movie. But oh. she's running up. Now, she is towards the uh, the guards or the, whatever, the soldiers that are in the Jeep. Her boyfriend is on her opposite side, so he's away from them. And I would watch it the first time, and, they, and he shoots, and he hits him. And I'm like, wait a minute, I had to miss that. So when I watched it the second time, I was watching that scene. And somehow, again, her body is fully blocking almost his whole body. But yet that soldier is, either he was trying to hit her and missed and hit him, or he's such a crack shot, he was able to hit at that distance from a Jeep that was sitting still, aiming from there, boom, take out the guy. Well, hit the guy, knock him down, and then they drive over and they they shoot him again. The second shot, there was more of a distance between the two. But I was like, man, that guy deserves a marksmanship award for greatest shot ever. And the other way you can look at it, whoever set up that scene and did it deserves a razzie for putting the people on the wrong side. Now, having said that, who would you rather see in the shot was featured more in the film? That makes sense. But what they're trying to do, with the way they had the shooters lined up, did not make sense. If they would have just moved the Jeep up the hill a little bit, had a different angle, then you could have still had her shot, their shot. Every shot would have made more logical sense i know people are probably saying that's what you find implausible about this movie The great marksmanship (laughs) shot
1: that's the breaking point for steve (laughs) (laughs)
3: it's not a breaking point it's just one of the things i wanted to point out man what a shot it's almost like it was scripted to happen plot armor for her until later on when marshall jones conrad shows up and then her plot armor I guess, evaporated. We don't know what happened to her. We can only
2: guess. Wasn't the marksman wearing sunglasses as well? I think he was, yeah. but <laughs> that, that was an amazing shot. Let's give it up for Marshall Jones's pom-pom hat of That's- doom. <laughs> Has there ever been a more undermining costume choice for such a sinister character than that hat. And I think it says a lot for Marshall Jones that he almost, almost pulls it off. Not only does he have to wear the thing, but he's doing a scene with Christopher Lee, probably the most menacing actor in the history of cinema. Poor Marshall Jones, they did not make that easy for him. But because he does such a brilliant job, It really makes me wonder why Marshall Jones did so little. Watching the film this time, I was so impressed by his performance. He holds his own easily with the three main people who we are watching this film for. His uh, performance is surprisingly subtle. It's nuanced. It's menacing as hell, even in a
3: pom-pom hat.
2: So I would love to know why Marshall Jones didn't do
3: more. Back to a question that Jeff asked forty-five minutes ago, I believe. <laughs> I don't think any of us ever answered. Didn't you posit the question out there or what's your best scene or what are your favorite scenes? Mm-hmm. I just want to say I always steal from Alistair, I'll probably steal somebody else's too. The scene with Dr. Sorrell and Vincent Price, when Vincent Price is explaining all the stuff going on, because you always need the mad scientist to have his monologuing. And really, that is what we've been missing in this movie for a long time. Just put the camera on, put Vincent on, and just watch the master work and how he explains everything. Not over the top like he goes in some films, but just enough maniacalness to know where he's not altogether there. You can just see the joy in the actor going from, I know it seems like science fiction, but it's reality. Here it's fact or something like that. I mean, you just got to love it. He's walking around, going for all the different gadgets. I mean, Peter Cushing would have had a field day with all the stuff there, touching and feeling and using all the different props that were around him. And Vincent Price was able to utilize props galore. And then Vincent Price's fight too much already mentioned early on, between him and Conrad. So you got to see Vincent do his monologuing, and then you got to see Vincent take down another guy which was able to be explained because of his supernatural strength, but the other guy had it, but it was just amazing he's, how he uses that oxygen tank and uses it well. Now, it just dawned on me. How in the world did Conrad lose his hand? I've watched this thing twice, and he's hitting him and hitting him. We never see him lose his hand, and then when he gets up to go back and bend it, you see the bloody sleeve and no hand. I'm like, where did he lose the hand? It's not shown. Again, editor, you're killing me, killing me here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I hate to say it, but we need to start wrapping up. I have notes we didn't even get to. I'm sure you do, too. So maybe we'll have to get together and have a sequel or something. I want to make one point and then you guys, please do your wrapping up points as well. So interesting. Our discussion has been so positive and so filled with joy and fun (laughs) I didn't know it was going to go that way because the commentary was all defending the complaints that people have about the movie. Why the three big people weren't together? Why this? Why that? And the whole thing was a love fest for Gordon Hessler and defending him and explaining why things turned out the way they did, which is interesting. But that's a whole nother angle that we could have gone down and I'm really appreciative that we got so much, like I say, joy and fun out of it. So I encourage people, if you want to know more about it, listen to that commentary. It's good. Read up on it and learn other things about it. There's obviously a lot more to it than I ever imagined.
1: I really enjoyed this film. Like I said, I'm appreciating it more and more with each viewing. Uh, There's a lot to love in it. It's not my favorite from these three, but certainly not my least favorite. It's a kind of solid in the middle film. It's crazy. It's fun. It's enjoyable. I'll certainly watch
0: it again. Steve, you want to go next so that we can let the person responsible for all this have the last word?
3: (laughs) As well, he should. I I enjoyed the movie for what it was. Now, is this a good movie? If you look at all the elements that you consider a movie to be good. Editing, scripts, putting the main characters, you know, the stars, letting them actually be able to show up and do stuff. Coherency. No, it doesn't hit any of those. Does it move? Does it have great pacing? Does it entertain? Does it achieve all those marks? Yes. The movie really doesn't know exactly what it is because there's so many different types, which we've already mentioned. And for some people, like Rich, it's also a comedy. <laughs> you never know how it's going to affect people. If you're a Vincent Price fan, I think this is one you definitely should watch because Vincent Price, out of the three main names, has the most to do. It's an entertaining movie. I was not sad to see this movie. Obviously, I enjoyed it enough the one time to watch it again the very next day to see the differences. You know your own self. I can't in honestly good faith tell somebody else, oh, yeah, go watch this movie. Though on my Facebook site, I was telling people where they could find it for free on Tubi. (laughs) so in a sense, I was telling people where to seek it out, but hey, they are choosing it on their own, hearing the comments or reading the comments that other people were putting on there were saying all my sympathies and all these other things. So people do have opinions about this movie and some people put the only one to see it once. So it is a very polarizing movie, but maybe I'm just scatterbrained enough to understand it or maybe it's because I was working a double shift and was watching it at the proper amount of sleep surprise meant to totally blow with this dreamlike state of a movie. But maybe I thought I was dreaming. But no, it's not a dream. It's a nightmare.
2: Alistair, bring us home. I am pleasantly surprised by how positive we've been, as you've mentioned, Jeff, because ah, this isn't a good film. As much as I personally love it, I couldn't call it a good film. For me, it's sort of comfort food, which at the same time, disturbs me greatly (laughs) and maybe that says a lot about me I'm afraid I just have too much tied up emotionally with this and also I kind of watch it from a distance a bit like watching a horrible train wreck it's not something that I can analyze as I would any other film and I think part of it also is that Steve and I generally do try to be as positive as possible on Hammerama and maybe that's infecting me a little bit here. I will always enjoy this film hugely for for many of the reasons that I've mentioned. There's lots of things that we haven't had time to touch on because Steve and I talk too much. Hopefully we've given a little bit of a taste of our impressions of this film. I actually wanted to finish with a quote that I found, and it's about the climactic scene. And if you ever watch this film again, boys and girls try and bear this quote in mind because it may sort of encourage you to see the scene in a completely different way it's a quote from christopher lee i was very fond of vincent and had great respect for his acting skills however the yellow tinge of the acid bath made it look like Vincent had suffered some terrible natural mishap on a grand scale. So the first take we did was completely ruined by us both laughing as we fought to the death. And those are my thoughts. Thank you very much. Perfect ending. This has
0: been a true pleasure.
3: Thanks again for having us on the podcast we've always enjoyed your guys work
0: we look forward to hammerama and diecast all
2: through october and beyond
1: yes thank you gentlemen for coming on we appreciate it
2: thanks guys it's been a pleasure and a total honor keep up the fantastic work
1: what are we doing next week what are we going to watch the fun thing about this month is that we've got all sorts of different guests and they're coming at these films from different perspectives different histories with the film Our guest next week, no, he doesn't have a podcast, no, he doesn't have a website, no, he hasn't done any films, but he's our good friend, Jonathan Angarole. We've had him on the show before, he's our resident kaiju expert, if you will, but no kaiju films next week, because he chose a definite ghost horror classic. This movie is often referred to as one of the best ghost stories out there. The Changeling from 1980, starring George C. Scott. And if you want to play along at home, as I'm sure you do each and every week, it is currently streaming on Peacock and Tubi, and it is available on Blu-ray from Severin. I think it's going to be a fun conversation we got with Jonathan coming our way in seven days. Thank you, everyone, for listening.
0: We look forward to chatting with you again next week. Thank you, everyone. Take care.